May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Someone uh, started around the Facebook post a little while back asking what everyone's pastor said all the time. They were looking for their catchphrases. We know we have them, um, no problem. And it was noted by several people that I tend to say dear ones and friends quite frequently. Uh, I have a lovely colleague who addresses groups as saints. She will say, greetings, saints. And I know that she and I both do that purposefully to remind people that they are beloved by us and by God. Uh, Pastors also tend to have email signatures that they they use at the end of every email. Uh, Things They can get kind of weird, too, sometimes. Things like in his hand or see you next week unless our Lord returns before then. Um, And most of the pastors I've known think long and hard about their email sign-offs. As many of you have seen in emails from me, I generally just say, Blessings. But the way that we address groups of people and the way that we sign off on emails make a statement about who we are in the world and how we feel about the people we're talking to. We have other catchphrases, too, other ways that we signal that something particular is happening in worship or in a conversation. When I begin praying, may the words of my mouth, you all know that that's the signal that I'm about to start Preaching. Sometimes I start preaching without saying that, but that's usually the key. And when I say amen, something has probably just ended. If I say friends in a particular tone, you know that I'm trying to call attention to what I'm about to say. Um, if I say it in another tone, my dear friends, you know that I'm ready to offer some comfort. Modern pastors are not the only ones with these sorts of catchphrases and linguistic signals. This is not new. The Old Testament prophets often spoke in special patterns, using key words to shape the way in which they delivered the word God gave them to deliver to the people. You see, Old Testament prophecy was not just about predicting the future. In fact, Very little, if any, of their job was the sort of magical future-telling that often gets associated with the word prophecy. They surely did speak of the new covenant that God would make with the people. And they surely did, in this passage that I am about to read, included, point toward the coming of the Messiah, which is why this Old Testament passage is in the lectionary for Christ the King Sunday. But they also delivered strong words of warning to those who were living contrary to God's ways of peace and love and hope and justice. They would point to the sinner. In the case of the passage from Jeremiah this morning, the sinner was the kings of Judah, and by proxy and complacency, the people blindly following them. And then they would say what God promised to do as a judgment if they didn't shape up. Where sometimes the prophets would tell them it was too late to stop these scary consequences. They'd gone too far. And this passage is an interesting combination of the two. In which, after indicating the judgment, God promises a coming age of peace. Under the reign of the Messiah, the shepherd king. 
Jeremiah 21, or 23, verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. One of the words that the Old Testament prophets used a great deal was woe. This word pointed to the person who was in trouble. Woe too was their warning that someone had gotten themselves into some trouble and decided to live in sinful patterns. Sometimes it was one person. Often it was the entire nation of Judah or Israel. But it's a sure sign that the word the prophet is about to deliver for God is kind of a big deal. And in this passage, Jeremiah points to the shepherds. And he's not talking about literal shepherds. He doesn't mean that the shepherds out in the fields tending their sheep are the ones in trouble. He's using a phrase that at the time was often used to refer to the leaders of Judah. They were meant to be as shepherds over the people, acting on God's behalf. But, being human, they had failed at that task. Using the word shepherds instead of kings is Jeremiah's way of pointing out how poorly they were doing the job they were supposed to be doing. They were acting like the kings of the world, not like the shepherds God called them to be. They had led their sheep, the people of Judah, astray. And they were all a hot, sinful mess as a result. These leaders had been taking advantage of the people, scattering them, causing division, ignoring those who needed help. They were not caring for the poor, the widowed, the orphaned, the outsider. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. After the condemnation of their actions, the prophets used the name of God to indicate that God was serious and was about to deliver the sentence. The name of the Lord was considered to be so powerful that when reading scripture and talking about God, the people would say God or the Lord rather than use the name of God. So when the prophets say the name of the Lord, you know that they and God mean serious business. You have not taken care of my people, says God through the prophet Jeremiah. The king's primary sin was their failure to take care of the poor, the widows, the outcast, to fail to serve justice on those who took advantage of them. This set the entire nation into a tailspin. God promises that those kings have a hefty price to pay for their injustice. And this is not just found here in this particular passage of Jeremiah. It is a, a theme and a message that we see all throughout the warnings of the prophets. Jeremiah is specifically calling out the leaders in his lifetime who were indeed the ultimate downfall of Judah. But this is an age-old critique of the kings of Judah and Israel. It is a critique of kings and queens and other rulers around the world for centuries and will continue to be the greatest downfall of nations for centuries to come. So therefore, as Christians, we are called to model ourselves after a very different sort of king.
Not the powerful military king with wealth and armies that the people expected in Jeremiah's time. Not the king who comes singing his own praises. Not the unjust and self-serving kings of Israel. But one who came as a true, peaceful, and loving shepherd. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. After pointing to the culprit, then calling out the sin, The Lord has the prophet Jeremiah tell the people what God will do to rectify the evil in their midst. The people have been so divided, so driven apart by the evil of their kings that the task of bringing them back together is not possible under any rule but God's. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. The prophets often say, look, the day is coming, to indicate that God has already set into motion the promises made in response to the evil they have suffered or have caused others to suffer. Just as he used the word shepherds to emphasize how miserably the kings are fitting into their calling as caretakers, he refers to the Messiah as only as king to emphasize that he alone can fill that role rightly. In other words... None of the kings that Jeremiah sees fighting for rule over the people are the rightful rulers of God's people. The military and political kings of the world that they have seen in the past and will continue to see for years to come are only separating them further and further from God and one another, each king more corrupt than the previous one. But under this new rule, this new day of God's reign, the people will be treated right again. They will be drawn back together under the reign of Christ, and the land will be just. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Finally, Jeremiah uses an interesting play on words to really drive the point home. Names have deep meaning in Hebrew culture, and the reigning king's name in Jeremiah's time, Zedekiah, meant my righteousness is the Lord. And Jeremiah turns that around to the Lord is our righteousness. It's a final demand that the people realize the kings have it backwards. This passage in Jeremiah begins with judgment, not just against the kings, but against all of Judah for blindly following corrupt, self-serving, and unjust kings of the world. This is an idea that is very uncomfortable for the people Jeremiah is speaking to. It's generally much easier to hear words of judgment against other people, but we never want to hear that we are included in those words of judgment, especially if that judgment is being given not for a direct sinful action, but for complacency or following others. But take heart, because this passage ends with grace. There is a king who is never corrupt, 
who never leaves out the outcasts, the broken, the hurting. One who will rule not as the corrupt rulers of the world, but as the loving shepherd. Mary Eleanor Johns wrote about this passage of Jeremiah. The reign of Christ is the reign of peace. The perennial question for the church is how do we live faithfully under this reign? Whether the crisis in our region, nation, or world is war, natural disaster, young people dying violently, lack of work, racism, sexism, trade policies, or migration, we are called to look to the underlying issues that play into the brokenness. At times, we are even called to upset the apple apple cart in order to empower all people as children of God. That's why I thought it was important for us to look at the entire Christian calendar today. I know you hear frequently from me how much I love the rhythm of the lectionary and the liturgical calendar, but there's a reason I love it so much. We live in a world that is all about hurrying, being the most powerful, deceit, shazam and sparkle, self-reliance, finality, taking charge, and kings who rule with an iron fist. And so it is comforting to be reminded throughout the year that we are loved by a God who cares about waiting and anticipation, vulnerability, truth and light, the day-to-day ordinary world, taking care of us, resurrection, showing us the way, and a king who rules a kingdom of peace that we are invited to live in for eternity. The calendar steps us through with special words and cues and signals, much like the prophets used, the various parts of the story of God's love for us. We hear, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and we are immediately filled with the anticipation that Christmas is coming. We hear the words, do this in remembrance of me, and Maundy Thursday, the Last Supper, comes to mind. If I say, Alleluia, Christ is risen, we all think about Easter. These celebrations and the words and the decorations and the music that go along with them remind us throughout the year of the incredible grace and power of a king who loves us and gave his life for us. And so today, let's continue to celebrate all aspects of the story of this king. Listen for our gospel. 